You're a witch. You're going to hurt him. I see a darkness in you. And in that darkness, eyes staring back at me. Brown eyes, blue eyes, green eyes. Eyes you'll shut forever. We will meet again. Hello everyone and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. I'm David Chen and I haven't read most of the books in George R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm Joanna Robinson. I've read every book in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. Welcome to the show, everyone. You can find more episodes of this podcast at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. You can also email us at acastofkings at gmail.com and find us on Facebook and Twitter also at acastofkings. Uh, and this week, we are going to be recapping Season 8, Episode 3 of Game of Thrones. That's The Long Night. Uh, we will spoil everything through this week's episode, but we won't spoil anything from future week's episodes that includes anything on the next time on preview that they usually show on HBO. Uh, so speaking of things that they show on HBO, Joanna, uh, I don't know if like we want to talk about all the stuff that was kind of like involved in the presentation of this episode before we get to this episode of the show. And one thing I noticed was that there was no previously on Game of Thrones. Was Was that your experience as well? I think there was no previously on. Oh, I didn't notice. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm sure. Because, like, how could they do it and not be, like, previously on uh, <laughs> Mel- Melisandre? <laughs> right, right. Like, like you know, they didn't, they, that. for some reason, I, I think they didn't want to show you all the stuff that was going to happen. So, like, I, I don't recall, I, I was looking for it, and I don't recall it. Because I usually, um, I see a, uh, like, is that HBO Entertainment logo pops up with all the static? And then uh-huh. there's, like, the previously on, and then, like, you know, into the opening credits. But then this week, I remember it was like just to the opening credits this week. So, huh. uh, I, yeah, I thought that was like, uh, I, I think they kind of assume, hey, you better have just, you know, been caught up before we start this week. Um, <laughs> yeah, is this then, your first episode? Good luck. Yeah, we're yeah. not going to try to sum up everything. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, and then the opening credits this week were slightly different. I think the Army of the North, the I should say the uh, White Walker Army, had advanced right to the gates of Winterfell in in the form of blue tiles, right? In this week's uh, opening credits. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, all right. And after the show or, or, or during the show, a lot of people were commenting on the presentation in terms of the uh, actual experience of watching an episode that was mostly set at night, right? This episode is like 90 minutes long. It's a huge battle sequence. Mostly set at night, and uh, for a lot of people, the night scenes didn't work super well. They f- they found it difficult to see, and so I thought. Uh, I mean, you did an article for this at Vanity Fair that people should check out. We'll link to it in the show notes uh, about was Game of Thrones too dark last night. But I'm curious, like, what your experience was watching it. You know, what did you use to stream it, and uh, was it too dark for you? Did you have difficulty making out certain things? Um, so I watched on HBO Go and I often watch these things. So I had it going on my iPad uh, just for like my first watch, right? Um, on my iPad with my nose like an inch away from it. Like I'm so <laughs> close to it. It's ridiculous. It's not optimal. The experience is probably very bad for my eyes. Um, and then, but later uh, in the evening, after I had sort of processed it through and stuff, you know, a couple times, um, I watched it again on our TV with my roommate. And as we were going through, I had to like 
narrate for her what was happening. I was like, oh, okay, there's Sam. He's still alive. Okay. All right. That's a shot of pod. Like, okay. Oh, it's Gendry. You know, like, yeah. we could not see uh, in certain, like, mostly like when the battle gets really like intensive and scrummy, you can't really, um, something I told her right off the bat, and I didn't think this was a spoiler to say, I was like, you won't miss a death of one of your favorites. Like, you don't have to like, like, scrutinize the battle too closely because they won't like just get rid of torment while you're like trying to figure out if you're even looking at torment you know basically like they you know they pause for ed they pause for liana they pause for you know like there there's no there's nothing like that so well i, I believe uh, that what you're saying is true but i i think that there was difficulty discerning who was alive and who was dead at the end of the episode oh absolutely right? absolutely and so like that I, 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 you know, seeing online the reaction, like there was just a lot of confusion from my perspective Absolutely. of yeah, who lived and who died. No, part of my job, um, I consider it my job, was rewatching the end of the episode to clock every, you know, because they tried to check in with all the characters to clock every character to check in and then like, you know, publish my article. It says like, here's who's alive here's who died, you know, sort of thing. And, um, I had three question marks that were resolved for me. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's one of those things. I think we talked about this in the podcast before where like, I feel bad. Like I'm happy to do this sort of like quote unquote service journalism. It's not really service journalism, but let's pretend it is <laughs> service journalism for people trying to watch and understand the show. But it is like this explainer culture thing, of like when a show relies upon the fact that a bunch of people are going to go to the internet and be like, I'm sorry, who just died? And like a bunch of us are paid to like say, don't worry, Gilly and little Sam are alive. We saw them, mm. you know, here in the shot sort of thing. So. So I watched this episode on an OLED TV, the LG C8, uh, which I just bought recently. And, and, it is not an exaggeration to say that this season of Game of Thrones is a significant part of the reason why I bought that television. Uh, and I had like an Apple 4K, uh, Apple TV 4K hooked up to it, like wired into the Ethernet, you know? So it wasn't like, uh, I, I was getting basically like the highest quality possible on HBO Now. And a lot of those scenes looked pretty muddy. And I think it's just because of video compression, right? We experienced this too when we watched... Uh, Twin Peaks, The Return, which is a new uh, a show that we also did a podcast on. And there was an episode of Twin Peaks, The Return that took place mostly at night and was very, very dark. And I felt like the presentation was a little bit rough. Um, and I, I kind of had that uh, experience watching this episode as well, that the the stream is just not equipped to deal with the number of gradations of darkness that were necessary to really tell this episode's story effectively. That's kind of my assessment of it. Does that? It's yeah. yeah, it's interesting because so yeah, I, I did talk to Fabian Wagner, who was the DP on this episode, um, just about sort of the the challenges of of lighting Game of Thrones generally when you when you have a quasi medieval world, a pseudo medieval world where uh, that is chosen a naturalistic approach to its lighting, right? So you have sunlight, moonlight, uh, firelight, candlelight are sort of like what you're working with here. And um, so when you do a nighttime battle like this, you have to be creative about your light sources. And so like, that's why Melisandre is so cute in this episode is she lights up the episode twice, right? Like first when she lights up the Dothraki horde and then when she lights the trench, that's the big, like, yeah, 
now you can see everything sort of moment. Um, and, and I think that's interesting. And I was watching, you know, uh, Miguel Sapochnik, who directed this episode, uh, told Entertainment Weekly like a while ago that he used uh, the Battle of Helm's Deep from Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers as an inspiration uh, for for sort of how to do sustained action and keep it interesting. And so I, I rewatched Helm's Deep on Saturday. I rewatched all the battle episodes and Helm's Deep on Saturday to sort of prepare for this episode. And um, Helm's Deep is fascinating to me because it is like, bright as F and day <laughs> that battle, which takes place at night and in the rain. Um, and, uh, someone, you know, I was tweeting about it. I was like, it is so bright. I can't even believe it. And someone tweeted at me this, this great quote, uh, that yeah. apparently, um, you know, it's, it's possibly apocryphal, but Andrew Lesney, who was the, like, uh, the late Oscar winning, uh, DP of, of, uh, Lord of the Rings, Sean Aston once asked him, like, where is the light coming from? Uh, and Leslie replied, uh, same place as the music. So he had no compunction about lighting this uh, night battle in the two towers up like a, you're in a football stadium. Like, he didn't care. Like, the yeah. moon is the brightest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. but, you can, but you can see every single detail of that battle. Uh, Fabian Wagner and Miguel Sapochnik tried to go for something more naturalistic with this. And, like, there's some ways in which it's striking. There's some ways in which the darkness is used really strikingly, like that opening shot of the Dothraki disappearing into the darkness and then you can just cure the army of the dead. I think that's really striking. And then there's sometimes when you just, yeah, you can't quite tell what's going on. So Yeah, I have no objection to the way, like inherently I have no objection to the way this episode uses darkness. Uh, there are other concerns about how it uses editing, for instance, or how it's shot and edited in a way that uh, people were left confused about who was alive and dead by the end, as we established. Right. And so, like, I, I think it's question like if that is what the result of the episode is, I think it's questionable whether the storytelling was really effective. Um, but yeah, I was actually going to read the exact same quote, Joanna Robinson, um, uh, from this article that Jacob Hall wrote today at slashfilm.com. Where uh, the headline of the article is "Game of Thrones drops the ball with the Long Night, the worst battle in the show's history." Uh, I'll give you two guesses of what he thought of the episode, uh, and he he quotes Andrew Lesney, and then Jacob follows up set by saying, "Sometimes a cinematic recreation of a concept is better than an attempt to actually create that very thing. It's possible to stage chaos. It's possible to stage chaos and place an audience in it and allow us to understand what we're looking at." But I wish Game of Thrones knew what Andrew Lesney uh, from the two towers new telling a clear story is the reason we're all here in the first place. And that should always be the number one priority end quote. Um, and so I, I think there is this argument that in trading away uh, the, uh, like having everything be extremely brightly illuminated, that it made things less clear. And, but, but in my opinion, it's just that like our, you know, streaming infrastructure is just not, not, able to handle something that is this challenging quite yet. Uh, and that I'm a little bummed that we won't be able to really see what the true uh, form of this episode is until it comes out on Blu-ray, right? Um, and another um, another a uh, factor of all this is that Helm's Deep, uh, which, is, which is a fantastic sequence in a fantastic movie, as far as I'm concerned, is a battle between humans and elves, yeah. or humanoid elves, and, you know, a bunch of orcs in the mud, 
uh, and the orcs are most or plenty of them are like stunt guys in suits, right? Uh, they're not dealing with CGI dragons. They're not dealing with, with giant CG, you know, whites. They're not dealing with white walkers. They're not dealing with the zombies and stuff like that. So all the digital effects are, um, you know, probably welcome the night a bit, <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause it's a bit more forgiving when you right. have, like if, if you watch, uh, and I'm sure you have, but if our listeners ever watch like a before and after VFX video where they sort of just do that sliding effect where they show you like yeah. how the effect is laid over. One of the last things is like a color correction thing, right? Where they just sort of like try to like mask things sometimes with like fog or sometimes with whatever to make it look a bit more seamless. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's a snowstorm in this that is not just, uh, you know, convenient for the plot lot it's also convenient for like you know trying to maybe make a bunch of dragons flying through the air look you know less computer graphic-y you know yeah 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 uh so in any case a lot of controversy online today about how dark the episode was but we should point out that uh, miguel sapochnik is an enormously talented director he directed some of the best battle sequences of game of thrones ever battle of the bastards and hard home uh, but again, as Jacob Hall points out in this article, those fights have the benefit of taking place in the daylight, where right. fast cutting is assisted by the mere fact that we can see faces and know who we are looking at. Um, and so there's a, there's a wide diversity of opinion as to whether or not this episode pulled that off. Okay, from my from my perspective, I could see what was going on, but like the compression made the dark sections look very blotchy. So it wasn't that I couldn't tell what was happening. It was just like, didn't look quite like I think Bloody. it was intended, right? Yeah. And for you, it sounds like your iPad viewing was, was superior to the TV viewing. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, but that, that might speak to the quality of my TV, which <laughs> I should probably do something about. But uh, yeah, so I'm not really in a position, especially with that TV viewing, to complain about um, what it looked like. Uh, so I'm not, I will say that I don't, any of these visual incoherencies, uh, I think were exacerbated by a script that if you really bear into it, like dig into it falls apart a bit. Hmm. Uh, and it reminds me more like, because when you look at something like hard home, uh, that Fabian Wagner did such a good job with, or even battle of the bastards, which still has some logical gaps to me. Um, it's pretty direct what's happening. Yeah. This reminds me more of beyond the wall last year's episode where like they all, the, all the guys went and look at hunting, hunting for zombies beyond the wall. There's just logical fallacies in this that like, it just it, like, it just does not make any sense to me. Like why certain people do certain things in this episode. I didn't yeah. hate the episode overall. I really liked it the first time. And that's what I've heard from a lot of people is like, you watch it once you watch it with your friends, you watch it like whoever you want. And you're like, yeah, this is, Oh, this is oh, crazy. So this good. Is gripping. Yeah. Oh, this is rad. And it is. And that was my experience too. And then if you're uh, like us and you have to rewatch it, maybe uh, to podcast about it, then you're like, wait, why is John just sitting yeah, there? Sitting and there what? And why does what? Danny land yeah. in the middle of a yeah. field with just the dragon stay just there. stay there, you know? And then, yeah, <laughs> all that stuff. And it, so it's like, it just doesn't, um, I think what I told you before we started recording is like, it doesn't bear up under scrutiny. And mm. like, I know that there's going to be people listening to this being like, just relax and enjoy it, man. And I'm like, well, that's your job, viewer. Like, you want to just <laughs> relax and enjoy it and you should relax and enjoy it. And it's our job to sort of dig into it. So yeah. that's what we're going to do. Indeed, indeed. Uh, so one of the big surprises of this episode is that Melisandre returns, you know, to deliver some much needed fire, 
Uh, and you know, it made me think: Wouldn't it be great if there was a delivery service out there that would uh, be kind of like your personal delivery service? You know, food delivery, grocery delivery, whatever you can think of delivery. Uh, and it, it would be amazing if that happened like all year round, right? Just for example. Uh, but fortunately, John Robinson, I think our first sponsor for today actually is that exact delivery service, isn't it? Absolutely, sure is. Uh, it's it's Postmates. It's it's my favorite. Mm, nice. Um, yeah, you know, Postmates, you don't have to go to the store. You don't even need to know where the store is. Postmates will deliver anything to you. You can download the app for iOS or Android for free and browse all local restaurants and businesses, track your delivery 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Postmates will bring you what you want within the hour. So if you, it's like 3 a.m. and you're like, I need to eat, you know, 15 McDonald's hamburgers. Who doesn't? Uh, which is, you know, may or may not be a true story. Uh, Postmates <laughs> will bring you what you want within the hour, pretty much. Yeah, there yeah. it is. Uh, so, yeah, Postmates uh, can deliver pretty much anything you're craving. They're the largest on-demand network in the known universe with more than 25,000 partner merchants. Uh, and I think we actually have a deal for people who are interested in trying out Postmates, right? Yeah, so for a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners... I'm a can of $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven what? days. Can you imagine how many um, 3 a.m. McDonald's burgers that would buy you? $100 uh, <laughs> of free delivery credit for your first seven days. Yeah, if you start free deliveries, you can download the app I, right now. I, I literally, it literally feels like something's wrong with that deal because it's so generous of $100 yeah, of free delivery it. Yeah, $100 yeah. first seven days. You download the app right now. Use the code uh, COK. I guess, which is our code. That's code COK for $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Get anything you need anytime you need it. Download Postmates and save with code COK. Yes, which we will always pronounce COK. COK. Yes. $100 of free (laughs) delivery credit for your first seven days. Thanks to Postmates for sponsoring us this week. So, John Robinson, uh, usually I'm, I'm going to give people a little insight into the way we do this podcast. Uh, usually every week uh, there's like a what's called a rundown where we kind of write down scene by scene everything that happens with the episode, right? Right. Uh, and in recent years, we've been kind of just covering entire storylines. Like, this is the Aria storyline this week. This is the Danny storyline this week. Obviously, uh, that's a little more difficult to do on this week's episode because the entire episode was kind of one long scene with different components. So right. uh, we, I have like a, uh, a write-up of uh, every kind of moment, every major moment in the episode uh, here in the show notes. And on occasion, we might read from that write-up. Uh, but it's it, we're going to probably skip around. It's probably not going to be like a normal episode um, uh, where we kind of cover each Person's storyline bit by bit because um, just the, the episode was structured very oddly. Uh, but let's start at the beginning, right? So uh, there's this huge lengthy section uh, in the opening of the episode where everyone's kind of setting up. It opens on Sam's shaking hands and there's this long continuous shot where you kind of uh, – it opens up and expands. You see all the preparations going on at Winterfell. Um, it goes from Sam to I think Tyrion to like other people. Uh, and I thought it was very effective. I thought it was very effective, like setting up, like how everyone is setting up. What do you think of kind of this opening where everything is very quiet? Yeah, no, I really loved that. Um, and I, I, I really love this idea of the sort of calm before the storm and how you can make, um, like 
the the quiet of a beginning really make um, the ending feel that much scarier. Uh, as part of my homework that I did on Saturday uh, to prepare for this episode, uh, I watched a YouTube video that is that is millions and millions of views. So probably most of you have already seen it, um, but I had never seen it. It's called Helm's Deep, How to Film an Epic Battle. Uh, and it's by NerdWriter1 on YouTube. And uh, it's so, it's like under seven minutes, six and a half minutes thereabouts. And it breaks down like why Helm's Deep is so effective. And one of the things that he talked about in that video is this sort of idea of like you start with a calm before the storm. And so when like this episode opened with that, I was like, oh, hey, it's the calm before the storm. Nice. I was told to expect this, um, you know, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it was really illuminating. And uh, do you like do you enjoy saying like obvious things out loud when you're watching the things? <laughs> I, at one point when I watched this episode, I was like, wow, Sophie Turner is a really good actress. So, yeah, apparently I do like saying all these things I love. Uh, yeah, I um, I I don't know. I, it's just like it's I like homework sometimes. Yeah, yeah no, it's cool. It's cool. It's I admire how hard you work to prepare for this. And, uh, no. <laughs> and I, I agree that uh, the opening minutes were like the calm before the storm and you kind of get a sense of like everyone's headspace. It felt like a really good continuation of last week's episode. So I was a fan of this stuff. And then Melisandre shows up. Uh, so we've been wondering where Melisandre was, whether or not she'd show up. She shows up literally minutes before the battle begins uh, and then tells... Sir Jorah to tell everyone else, all the Dothraki to hold up their their scythe things, and she kind of lights them all on fire. What did you think of the whole Melisandre coming back in the picture and how it was handled? Um, I mean, I guess it's like a little odd if you want to get like I. There's there's so many like nits that I will pick in this episode <laughs> that I don't really care that much about, like a magical woman appearing out of nowhere on her horse. You know what I mean? I think it was kind of like dramatic and cool the way she showed up like that. And I really liked, uh, the way she lit up the Dothraki, uh, horde and stuff like that. Um, it looked amazing. Like all that stuff. I mean, we can talk about how problematic it is to send the Dothraki to their death. uh, First thing, but like, (laughs) but like, but visually, (laughs) It looks really cool, her letting up the horde. And this is like her, um, you know, because when she left in season six and then she sort of like ducked around in season seven a little bit, um, you know, basically Jon Snow and Davos said like if she came back, she would be executed. Um, And so I feel like she had to show up and do like a sort of a a proof of peace offering. Yeah, peace offering or like a proof of worth or something like that. It's just sort of like, hey. I'm useful. You're going to want me. Let me in. Um, sort of thing. And so I liked that. Um, you know, we see Davos sort of looking at her as the character who's like most pissed to see her back and stuff like that. And that whole arc, like the whole Melisandre arc and the whole, like the looks that Davos throws at her from time to time, I think was pretty effective. Yeah. Uh, so you have more nits to pick. I think the Melisandre thing bothered me a little bit just cause it felt like, would really just like uh, would everyone just accept that this woman is back? And you know, obviously Davos had some issues with her, and she says to him, "There's no need to execute me, Sir Davos. I'll be dead before dawn." And you know, that's uh, that kind of seems to satisfy him for a little bit. But last week, I defended the show from charges of fan service. Right? I was like, nothing in that ep- or very little in episode two of season eight felt fan servicey to me. And I kind of need to retract a lot of that defense for this episode. Uh, and I feel like Melisandre showing up and 
doing some badass fire stuff out of nowhere. Um, it just, you know, it, like they set it up in the sense that she's here to fulfill her purpose, but I don't think they set it up like otherwise in the realm of the show. Like you, you know, you don't see her for many, many episodes, right? So just her showing up and doing badass things. I, I don't know. It felt uh, a little convenient to me. That's what I would say. Um, so. um I think <laughs> I, well, I, so I was bracing myself on this episode for like a bunch of like, Deus Ex Machina because um you know this episode of the podcast or of Game of Thrones? <laughs> yes, and here come some giant flying eagles. No, um, because <laughs> Tolkien loves Deus Ex Machina, George R. R. Martin loves Deus Ex Machina and HBO, the HBO adaptation loves Deus Ex Machina. So we haven't had a battle episode yet without Tywin writing it at the Blackwater, Stannis writing it at Castle Black. Um the Knights of the Vale, Battle of the Bastards, Daenerys on her dragons beyond the wall. It's really only um, Hard Home, which they lost, that there is no Deus Ex Machina, right? Um, and so I expected that to happen. And you could argue if you want that Arya is one, but I don't think she is because I think that's seeded into the episode. And so if Melisandre had shown up at the turning of the tide, like Gandalf yeah. or something like that, like that would have bugged me. But she shows up right at the beginning of the episode. I'm like, okay, so they have Melisandre on their team for this. All right, the fight hasn't even started. It's not like, whoa, where'd that come from? It's a fireball from the sky. It's Melisandre. You know what I mean? Right. She like comes trotting up. It, she, it's connected to her story in terms of like, she said that she was going to come back. She said she was going to come back to die. Um, I think the seeds were planted for it. So it doesn't feel that cheap to me um maybe some other things do but this right. does not all right so. that's fair enough i think one thing that's interesting i was listening to the making of the show after uh, yeah. the uh, sh show and they're talking about how they they want to give the dothraki this like bad this badass like hopeful moment uh and well they're they're generally talking about how hard it is to make a battle scene interesting for this long right for yeah. for 90 minutes right and the, the they were like, yeah, they lit up all these like weapons that the Dothraki are, are holding, and you get this kind of energized sense right before that all comes crashing down. And I do think that there there is um, something viscerally effective about that, right? That you just see this huge stream of lights kind of crossing Gorgeous. this field, right? Yeah. It's beautiful, and then you see them like being snuffed out one by one. I mean, it, it's a beautiful metaphor. It's beautifully executed. Um, and whether or not it makes sense, like on on a visceral here's, level, <laughs> it, it is like really impactful. Um, here's why it's problematic. What's yes. problematic about it is not it's like okay, so da uh, Daenerys's forces are the people of color in this battle, right? It's the Unsullied and the Dothraki, right? Um, and you know the fact that they are like the like probably the most fearsome fighters and on the front line makes sense. That's fine, whatever. The fact that the entire Dothraki horde and Jorah and Ghost go riding into the dark and Jorah and Ghost come back <laughs> and not a single Dothraki does. And I'm like, the white guy and the white direwolf came back, but like yeah. all the all the brown guys just got snuffed. <laughs> the, um, it does look amazing, though, like not just the riding in the slow snuffing of the light and then everyone's faces as they watch the light go out. I think that's a really good like metaphorically and and sort of physically uh, a really, really cool aspect of it. I think there's a lot of questions about where people are and why they're showing up in certain places. Grey Worm seems to be at the front of the line of uh, 
unsullied, but then later he shows up at the back of the line, right? Like uh, as with the last line of defense. I don't know if uh, if that resonates or if I if I even read that that correctly, you know. Um, but that's what it felt like to me is that like people were kind of like transporting places. Uh, My sense is that there's some a lot of stuff that was cut, and so mm. like there's definitely I think some Grey Worm stuff that was cut because mm. I feel like his arc in this you know they said they tried to give each uh character kind of like an arc and he kind of has one in that like he has this connection with melisandre because like i don't know they're both from out of town um and then like later creates his phalanx for her to come out and like light the um the trench uh and then later you see him fighting in the courtyard but like you don't get a full like his his arc kind of spins out at that point. And, and then he was one of my question marks at the end of the episode. He is alive, but like he was a question mark for me. Mm. Uh, cause they did not check in with him very much, uh, but, but I, I will admit that I was not like obsessively tracking where the Encelid were. Right. I, I think the most important thing that we need to know about the Encelid is that Grey Worm created this, like, I mean, I think it's a phalanx, right. For, for Melisandre to safely and, this we're getting ahead of ourselves it's safely cool. and very slowly. I don't know why so slowly walks to the trench delighted. Axios on you, Elon Misa. Axios on you, Elon Misa. Axios on you, Elon Misa. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of slow <laughs> walking in this episode where, like, uh, if the person had just walked a little bit faster, the outcome might have been different. Um, but you anyway. mean like when John goes charging the Night King and then like kind of slows up for some reason? <laughs> yeah, anyway. yeah. Or yeah. Uh, or you know when the Night King walks extremely slowly towards Bran at uh, the end of the episode. Oh, yeah. but I mean that's just his mo. He yeah. loves a slow walk. <laughs> he has a very <laughs> deliberate gait. The Night King yeah. does. So that guy that guy has never hustled when he could stroll. <laughs> <laughs> He's overcome. It's hubris. It's hubris is what it is. Right. <laughs> Uh, okay, so he, here I'm just gonna read from my sh- so uh, like I, I have written the show notes this week, and it's I'm basically gonna read from my show notes, which encapsulates my reaction to what's going on as well. Um, the dead approach. It's like a freaking zombie tornado. Quick cuts of beheadings. Uh, the zombies appear to be running past everyone. It's an overwhelming force, right? And uh, I, I did appreciate the speed with which the zombies moved, and it's just like they don't even care about. Uh, killing everyone like they're just they're just trying to like clear a path uh and that's one of the great things that this show has always done is uh these whites like they move as though life is not important to them uh and as though they themselves are disposable and you really get a chance to see what the result of that is on the battlefield so i only have one quibble with this and it, it again comes later in the episode is when Arya is doing her sort of like house of horrors thing inside the Winterfell library. Yeah. And there's one white, uh, who is played by a Spanish actor who does like a bunch of, uh, cool, like body horror stuff. Uh, you know, and they got him because he's like, he's like, m- like 
double jointed in all his joints or something like that and could do like crazy weird stuff with his body and that's great and that's cool but he seemed like a very smart white because like you hear the like patter of her blood on the ground and then he sort of like you know looks for her under the table which just felt like more more cognitive thought than we've ever seen one of these zombies give anything I don't know if I'm overthinking it. Well, anyway. I mean, not to mention the fact that they are just chilling in the library, like just figuring out what books to check out, you know, as opposed to why aren't they just kind of like running around frantically, which is what they've been doing the whole rest of the episode. Yeah, um, I don't know. Maybe of, these are the, the cerebral zombies. These are the cerebral them. whites. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just uh, it's just kind of a little bit random, you know, you know <laughs> stuff like that. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, John Robinson, I wonder what kind of books those whites would check out. They're probably trying to unravel the mysteries of Winterfell. Yeah. And that's what we try to do here on this podcast. And if you enjoy hearing us unravel mysteries. Wow. Yeah. Then, boy, have we got a sponsor for you this week. We really do. (laughs) Hunt a Killer is one of our sponsors this week. John Robinson, what is Hunt a Killer? Oh, well, um, Hunt a Killer is your new favorite obsession. It's a monthly subscription game where you get to become a detective and immersed in a murder mystery. I love this stuff so much because um, I think you all know that I secretly want to be a detective if you've ever watched me hunt down clues on a TV show. Um, so you know, basically each month you receive like crime scene photos, evidence, motives, suspect information that you need to use to solve a crime. It's super interactive uh, and it's really, really challenging. Like this is one of the things is like it's not a super easy game for babies this is a very hard thing to crack and this is why they have online communities because you're gonna need to crowdsource your investigation uh into this hunter killer mystery yeah and one of the great things about uh, a podcast like a cast of kings that i think joanna you particularly have really embraced is this this whole idea of this community that we've created around listeners to the show who talk to each other and who kind of form their own discussion groups and who kind of participate in this thing together. And that's one of the great things about Hunter Killer is that uh, over 60,000 people have joined Hunter Killer's online community. Uh, and you can kind of, you're kind of participating in unraveling this mystery with thousands of other people. And that's a really great and thrilling experience. Um, so, Joanna, we have a deal for people interested in Hunter Killer and interested in uh, this monthly subscription game, right? Yeah. So, right now, just for our listeners, you can go to huntakiller.com slash kings for 20 percent off your first box they only accept 200 members per day so hurry take advantage of this offer that's huntakiller.com slash kings for 20 percent off your first box huntakiller.com slash kings see if you have what it takes to get into the mind of a serial killer and solve the mystery thanks to huntakiller for sponsoring us this week so uh we were talking about uh, the library stuff. I thought that stuff was pretty effective. I mean, overall, I thought the variety of battle stuff was pretty good in this episode, right? Because you can't have just endless battle stuff, right? There's this kind of horror stuff. There's individual confrontations. It slows down. There's the crypt stuff. Um, so I, I actually like the pacing of the episode in general. Uh, how did you feel about the pacing overall? I thought, like, it's hard to make a 90-minute battle sequence right um and i thought they did a good job spicing it up from a pacing perspective i think so i think that they um miguel sabachnik said they wanted to break it down into three parts the first part is suspend a suspense film 
the middle part is this horror film, a lot of which has to do with Aria uh, in the library and stuff like that. And then the last part is an action film. Mm. Um, and uh, the suspense and horror worked really well for me. And then the action worked less well for me, I guess. I, I will say from start to finish. Yes, that's true. Uh, the Aria stuff actually really works for me in this episode. I've actually had a hard time accessing Aria as a character for a very long time now because the whole idea of her character is that she's been stripped away of her humanity. That's the whole thing that she like went to train in assassin school and they, and they tried to strip out her individuality. And so because of that, even though I really responded to Maisie Williams as a performer for the first like four seasons of the show, I've had a hard time really accessing Arya's journey and I love that this episode gives you like frightened Arya and emotional Arya and Arya on the back foot and all that sort of stuff like that stuff really really worked for me uh in a way of accessing her humanity and I think we talked about this on the podcast before this idea of like Winterfell is a place for all these Starks to reaccess their humanity or reaccess their Starkishness because you see it with Brand too, you know, um, once again, not to skip too far ahead, but like Bran has this killer line to Theon where he says, you're a good man, Theon Greyjoy. That's not something the Three-Eyed Raven would ever say to Theon, right? Like that's a Bran gift mm-hmm. to Theon. And so that's Bran sort of warming up his humanity a little bit in the godswood there. And I think seeing Arya so scared... Um, and, uh, you know, as you, you blinking, you might have missed it. But as the, the showrunners pointed out, Arya sustains like a major head wound. Is that, I mean, she's gushing blood, but she like thwacks her head. Yeah. And so if you're like, why, why is this trained assassin so like scared and disoriented? It's because she's like, she's got like a brain injury basically in this episode. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's part of what she's dealing with there. So uh, some stuff starts to happen with the dragons, right? Uh, and I think overall, so there's some cool moments. It's obviously super cool to see Danny light up some some uh, whites with a dragon, right? Um, Danny is riding Drogon, right? Correct. Viserion is the one that was turned into ice dragon. Is that right? Correct. Yes. And um, the third one is. You got this. You got this. Uh, name it's named for John's dad and Rhaegal. Rhaegal. Yeah, that's Samuel. the one that John Snow rides, aka yep. John Snow, aka Egon Targaryen rides. Right? right, nailed it, got it. And so I definitely didn't Google that just now. Um, so no, I they... was giving you clues. <laughs> you could have gotten it. All right. Cool. So they uh they start torching the whites, and it's really thrilling to see. But then like, uh, and they're then they're they're going in. For the White Walkers, right? And then all of a sudden, an ice storm arrives. So, uh, has it been introduced earlier on whether or not, like, the White Walkers can conjure ice storms? The Night King certainly can. Um, There's... So, when I was talking... Okay, so I got feedback last week when I was like, someone told me I named off too much. I'll stop doing that. And then a bunch of people were like, don't listen to that person. So, yeah, uh, I was talking to sound designer Paula Fairfield, who does the noises for the the whites and the White Walkers and the dragons. And uh, she was saying because the Night King has this sort of... And the White Walkers have this sort of elemental ability, there is like this sort of earth-cracking sound that accompanies their arrival. Uh, It has been established that they can bring a storm or at least the night king can um and uh john said in season six end of season six i think it is he says 
um, our enemy won't wait out the storm. He brings the storm. So mm. like it is, it's very established in show canon that, that this is something that the Night King can do. Uh, I don't think we've ever seen it quite on this magnitude. This is sort of like wave of snow and ice that hits them in the sky. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's this kind of tussle uh, between the dragons. Like the you see Viserion, you see the Night King riding him. Uh, Bran is like warging up there. He can see what's going on, and uh, and then there's this confrontation. And then I. <laughs> I write here in the show notes, John and Danny fly dragons together, comma, but they crash into each other, question mark. I thought a lot of the dragon battles was was very Funny. yeah, difficult to understand what was happening. And like, oh, I think I saw like Viserion clogging, uh, like clawing away at uh, Rhaegal's, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think maybe one of them was badly injured, but it wasn't really clear. Um, so it's just a lot of like weird dragon stuff and, and like... Overall, I think here's my takeaway from Battle of the Bastards and uh, The Long Night is that Jon Snow is not a particularly good military strategist. Uh, I mean, between jeopardizing himself and his men by running out there for Rickon and uh, not using the dragons to stay close to the ground and torch the whites. And yeah, sure, part of people are saying, uh, like, I've seen people respond by saying, like, oh, well, maybe that was part of the point of the episode was that Tyrion was not there helping them. And that's why they did such a shitty job. And uh, I, yeah, sure, maybe, I guess, but it's it's pretty unsatisfying. And even from a just narrative cohesion perspective, it's hard to even understand what's happening. Um, but that's my reaction. Joanna, what do you think? Well, uh, so, you know, this is, anytime I say anything remotely disparaging of Daenerys, people online get very mad at me. Um, she has a very strong uh, defense online, uh, just like Miss Sandy in the Crips, who's like, don't you talk shit on Daenerys. Anyway, um, what I think they're trying to do at the beginning of this episode is establish a parallel between Jon running in after Rickon in Battle of the Bastards and Daenerys hopping on a dragon and running when she sees the Dothraki horde get swallowed up by the army of the dead, right? Because these are – the Dothraki are her guys. Those are the her guys fighting for her. And right. she just saw the like basically the complete genocide of the Dothraki um, from a clifftop. And so she's she's she runs again on a dragon and Jon's like, you know, the Night King – like our plan – was to wait until the Night King showed himself and then we ride in on the dragons. She's like, uh, F that plan, I'm going in. That's exactly what John did, Battle of the Bastards. So, like, the foolhardiness of the dragon stuff is a little bit, I think, on Daenerys in this situation. But I also don't even know why John is riding that dragon because, like, when they did the Battle of Marine uh, in season six, uh, in the Battle of the Bastards episode, I believe, uh, you know, Daenerys was on one dragon. The other dragons torched things just fine without a rider. As far as I can tell, like John didn't help anything by being on Rhaegal in the first place. In fact, he parks Rhaegal on a rampart of the castle. and just sits there for like, I swear to God, 20 minutes. Yeah. What is he doing? What is he doing? You know, like I I don't understand it at all because like, and, and that's the section where Daenerys is lost in the snow. They're trying to light the trench. And they're like, light the trench, dear God, she can't see us, light the trench. And John is sitting right there. And someone suggested, like, maybe he doesn't know how to say Dracarys, but I'm like, maybe that's lesson number one. <laughs> you teach Jon Snow. <laughs> like, should not, shouldn't he be able, like, Rhaegal is injured. It's true. Um, They don't really show it very well, but Rhaegal is injured. And so, like, maybe, maybe should, maybe make that clear. Maybe make it clear that the dragon is, like, kind of down for the count or something like that. Yeah. But, like, 
it's uh it's confusing the dragon stuff is confusing and, and i don't really blame them because it's hard to do a battle on the ground and dragons in the air and make it feel cohesive and i think this is where some of the gaps in the script come into play well i would say it's hard to do a battle between two forces uh, where both sides have these incredible killing machines. Yeah. Right? I mean, uh-huh. you, you need to basically invent ways to flummox the dragons, right? And what, like how successful they were is up to the viewer. And I think uh, my response would be the success was mixed in terms of how well they were I... able to convince me that they could keep the dragons out of the mix. Um, I think we, we talked about this when I was on the Slash Filmcast talking about Captain Marvel. Um yeah. I'm not going to talk about either of the Avengers movies that came out in the last two, you know, year or whatever, uh, because someone got mad at me for dropping an oblique Endgame reference uh, in a Game of Thrones post. So I'll go all the way back to Civil War. Spoilers! (laughs) Spoilers for Captain America Civil War. Nice. When you have a fight on the tarmac, like you do between these superhero team-ups, and you have some people who are overpowered, like, as far as I'm concerned, always scarlet witch who played by elizabeth olsen who can bend reality you have to figure out a way to sideline that person so it's not just automatic game over yeah because you have an overpowered player on the field and that's exactly what these dragons are they're overpowered players on the field so you have things like a snowstorm take them out of the mix or something like that you know so yeah which and so i understand the desire to do it that way I, i just think the execution between the edit, the you know, rapid editing, and the fact that you couldn't really see anything in the snowstorm and all that stuff. I think the execution was a little rough. Um, yeah. So, uh, the, although there were some nice moments, like when they get above the clouds, you know, it is beautiful to see those two dragons kind of flying very, above the clouds. Very, very how to train your dragon, and I mean that as a compliment. Very how to train your dragon, which I, I continue to be shocked does a better job at dragon combat than. Game of Thrones. Um, but uh, anyway, I love that series. So uh, what else happens in this episode? So, I mean, I think we can start talking about the deaths that happen, right? Um, there is uh, Ed dies, saving Sam. Uh, Leanna Mormont dies. Uh, and then we can talk about Theon later. But uh, are there any other major deaths that occur uh, on the field, at least? Uh, not till the end. Yeah. Right? So uh, I thought Leon Leon got a pretty awesome moment. Yeah. I mean, sure. As far as yeah. death goes, that, that's pretty good. And uh, un- unfortunately, it seems to signal the end of the Mormont line with her with her death and da- oh Davos. That was the other one we forgot to mention. Or I'm sorry, um, Jorah Mormont, right? That's what I meant. Not till the end. Yeah. Sorry. I meant Jorah. Sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So House Mormont snuffed out uh, in this episode. For yeah. Sure. yeah. 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 Um. Yeah. No. I mean, not in the books. Someone's going to get mad at me. Not in the books. There are other more months. But as far as the show's concerned, like these are the last two more months, basically. Um, I I have a conspiracy theory <laughs> uh-huh. about uh, Leona Mormont's death. And it's that. And they will probably not agree with this. They will say that they just they like the character Leona Mormont and wanted to give her like a badass way to go out or whatever. Right. Um, I think they killed this little girl. So that they could not be accused of uh, all teen or preteen girls in this episode being overpowered. I think they knew that they were going to get criticisms from for the Arya stuff. Hmm. And they killed Liana to be like, Liana goes out like a badass, but she goes out. You know what I mean? And yeah. so uh, that's that's my conspiracy theory. 
Uh, whereas the alternative would have been like she takes out you know zombie one one without dying. I right? don't the... I don't think that's one one, but yeah. Um, okay, zombie yes. giant. Sorry, zombie giant. Yes. Yeah. A non a not a hashtag not all giants are the same. Um, <laughs> yeah. If she if she killed if Liana killed a giant and survived, right? Without us ever seeing her fight anything ever, uh, that doesn't that that would uh, probably have its own uh you know narrative today well we'll we'll talk more about later like the number of people the total number of people that died right like because i i think joanna robinson you and i were expecting that that body count would be higher this week am i am i right about that yes i expected like at least two more yeah b string to go down yeah so uh let's talk about some of the crypt stuff right yeah so Arya tells Sansa to go down to the crypt with a dagger, you know, stick him with a pointy end, she says. Obviously a reference to season one, episode one? Two. Two? Uh, when when John you know, says, and then obviously the callback, I think it was last week. Uh, and yeah, tells Sansa to go down to the crypt with a dagger. And there's a lot of like this kind of dialogue down in the crypt. Again, you know, Call, calling out like the the Jon Snow mastermind of uh, the <laughs> the uh, art of war, uh, which is like Jon Snow is the only character I th- as far as or one of very few characters who has seen that the Night King can revive dead people, and his plan is like let's stick all the women and children down in the place <sighs> where there's definitely lots of dead people. It's like it's funny because I think the sh- I don't know if the showrunners. Or the writers thought it wouldn't occur to us. It feel like they thought it wouldn't occur to us, but like I feel like everyone watching the show has been saying this. Well, I think a lot of people have been saying it ever since they saw Arya running through the halls of Winterfell. Everyone's like, "Oh, the crypts of Winterfell, of course." Blah blah. blah. The whole promo for season eight was the crypts of Winterfell. Yeah. Like, obviously, that's what the dead is. Um, I was watching the making of uh, Doc, and uh, Peter Dinklage was giving an interview because, like, if you watch the making of Doc, you can see that. Um, there originally was a lot more action happening in the crypt. Like Sansa and Tyrion are actually fighting as opposed to just like thinking about fighting, which is Hmm. what we see in this episode. Uh, So like, yeah, they have like a whole action sequence down there, Um, which makes sense because like, it actually really bothers me that Sansa goes down to the crypts and then like, doesn't do any leading whatsoever because I was thinking about um, the battle of Blackwater uh, when Cersei and Sansa are in the uh, like Maegar's hold fast while the action's going out outside in season two, Battle of Blackwater, and uh, Sansa starts like Cersei's a terrible leader. She's not comforting anyone. She's basically talking about how everyone's going to get raped. That's Cersei's idea of leadership. Cersei leaves at one point, and Sansa's like, "Shall we all hold hands and sing a hymn?" And like, and they all sing a hymn, and it's actually like kind of, and she like gives them a little speech, and it's actually like kind of a beautiful active leadership and it really bothered me that she like had no active leadership in this episode uh but apparently she did it just got cut out much like eowyn in hell's deep anyway um well this is this moment when she's kind of holding hands with Tyrion, right and you you remember how much these characters have gone through yeah and it it's like a heartbreaking moment and i expect them to like go out there and do something badass and possibly sacrifice themselves and and nothing happens Right. Yeah, and then it just like cuts to later. There's a bunch of dead bodies on the ground. It's like a and, huge and every, like wet and, fart of a lead up that just like <laughs> and every every um 
every named character we cared about in the crypts is fine. Yeah. So, I mean... uh, and, uh, there are no whites down there that we recognize just so everyone like can stop looking for <laughs> undead Ned Stark or whatever. He's not down there. They didn't do any, um, recognizable, uh, Starks, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. So Peter Dinklage in that, in that video, sorry, was saying like, yep, I thought Tyrion was a smart guy, but apparently he just went down into where all the dead bodies are. And <laughs> there's a guy, so I guess he's not that smart or like whatever, like basically like underlying the fact that this is the stupidest thing, um, that they did. I yeah. don't know. It was just like, it was, it was a bad payoff for like, you know, something that could have been quite cool. I did like the, um, the mummified whites. I thought they looked kind of cool. It's like a different look that we usually see, but, uh, yeah, not, not great crypt payoff. The, the crypt say. stuff was like the Dorn of <laughs> this episode pretty much. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I mean the crypt stuff was pretty rough. Uh, and it's, it's just, again, it is rough when like the audience, like you, as we've said before, I've said a thousand times, like you want the show to be ahead of the audience. Right, you don't want the audience to be ahead of the show and being like, "Well, you know, they're going to raise it." Like, you want everyone on the show to be smarter than the audience would be. Right. Uh, you want the audience to be like, "Oh my god, I, I didn't even think about that. That's incredible." You know, like that's what you want. Not, I can see that coming, and this is super dumb. Yeah, um, but on the other hand, like it's really, I, I, I don't envy showrunners and writers these days. Like when you have the full, bra like when you're something as popular as Game of Thrones or like Westworld, and you have the full brain power of Reddit being like, what about this possibility? What about that possibility? What about that possibility? And like, there's, it's so hard to keep in front of an audience. You know what I mean? Like, I think the Arya thing at the end was in front of audiences, but, um, yeah, but generally, no, like the crypt thing is not going to surprise us or Melisandre <laughs> coming back is not going to surprise us because a lot of us were like, hmm, Chris Van Houten was on the cover of Entertainment Weekly, but we have not seen her yet this season. Hmm, Melisandre's never been in a battle episode. It might be nice to see, uh, you know, a ma magical woman in a battle episode before this this uh, show is over. I wonder if she'll be showing up, you know, like that's it's hard to slip that past us, I think. So later on in the battle sequence, there is a scene where John confronts the Night King, where where Danny Dracaris is the Night King, and he cannot be killed with Dragonfire, right? Uh, and this was a question last week: Can he be killed with Dragonfire? This actually set a lot of people off online to believing that he's actually a Targaryen. Uh, the Night, no. Yeah, right. But like that that theory has been debunked. We should say right that you know, yeah, Night, Night King was created long before the Targaryens and. Um, uh, it it just uh, the the Night King has ice powers, so it it makes sense that he would be able to resist fire, right? Is there anything else you think needs to be said about Night King being able to resist fire? No. Okay. So there is this cool moment where like John is like running after the Night King. It's it's like a genuinely thrilling moment when he's like running after the Night King, and then um, the Night King turns around and like starts raising everyone up. Uh, of course, it's like a question of why the Night King waited until that moment. But again, whatever. It's a, you know, I, I, again, it feels like a lot of moments in this episode are are maximized for their like effectiveness, um, for good or ill. And uh, yeah, he starts raising up some dudes, and then like John is like, unable to get to him, and John needs to start cutting people down. Um, but yeah, you do see Ed come back to life. You see Leona Mormont come back to life. I wrote in the show notes, Winterfell is well and truly fucked at this point. Um, <laughs> what you, uh, any thoughts on like this whole sequence of John kind of going after the Night King and, and the whites raising from the dead? Once again, I feel like John slowed down his pace and he should have just kept going like hell for leather. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like, they, just like chop those whites down and like, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, we do. Yeah. We see Ed, Liana and uh, Kono, who's the like only Dothraki th- whose name we know. Uh, they're all whites now. Um, I thought it was interesting. Like I, it's funny. I expected the show to like, and I've talked about this on many podcasts. I expected the show to be like, okay, resurrect your dead faves. Yeah. And then have to watch someone kill them all over again. This is like the sadistic game of chess that I was playing. So like that. And the show's like, no, we're not doing that. And I'm like, Okay. Uh, so maybe I was not giving them enough credit. Like, cause that's where that's an emotional jugular that they like just sort of sidestepped. Um, I don't know if they thought it would be too cheap or whatever, but, um, yeah, I'm kind of glad I didn't really need to see zombie Liana Mormont. Um, yeah, anyway, here, here, here's an email that comes in from Bianca who writes into a cast of Kings at gmail.com. She wrote this email to us five days ago. And she says, uh, I'm already depressed to lose Brienne. (laughs) Little did Bianca know that we would not lose Brienne. Uh, My heart exploded seeing her little smile after Jamie knighted her. It was such an intimate, beautiful moment. Um, I was already picturing the final death scene between her and Jamie. It would be so bittersweet and tender. A moment of calm on the battlefield. He'd kiss her forehead once she'd passed. You'd see all of Jamie's grief flicker across his face for the briefest of seconds before he'd have to rejoin the fray. Cliche, I know, but still sweet. But fuck me, Joanna. I had not considered Brienne coming back as a white. Um, Jamie, in the midst of his grief and loss, having to immediately deal with a white Brienne, the horror in his eyes seeing her rise from the dead, seeing her lurch and move, but knowing that she, Brienne, his guiding light, isn't in there, my stomach is rolling just thinking about it, end quote. So a lot of people, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, just the idea of like <laughs> people facing off against like you know white versions of, of their beloved uh, got our listeners into really upset point, right? Just the idea of it—it it didn't even happen. Um, but so, so, but the fact that like not, that didn't really happen with kind of the the A team or the A or B listers uh, felt like a bit of a missed opportunity grammatically, right? What do you think? Yeah, I don't know if it's fair to hold the show to my like fan fiction right. idea of what could happen. Right, right, right. <laughs> Um, I'll just willingly admit that I was super wrong about that. I was also super wrong, by the way, about the HBO um, hashtag for the throne. And I will admit it everywhere that I can. Um, can you I clarify really... cl- clarify what you were wrong about? Well, so the, the promo for the season was hashtag for the throne. And I got really mad because I thought it like the whole season was going to be about the fight between the army of the living and the army of the dead, which is what I think what a lot of people thought it was about. Um, and so I was like, why call it for the throne? That makes no sense. Like they're not fighting for the throne. Like they're fighting for the realm. They're fighting for this, like all of our stuff. Like it's so stupid. They just said <laughs> for the throne. Cause it's like easy to remember, or it, it sounds like the name of the show or whatever. And then this episode ended and I was like, Oh, the hashtag was right. Oh no. Um, anyway, so, um, it's, I was wrong about hashtags. Not for the last time, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, understood. So, a lot of stuff going on with Danny. I, I write here in the show notes, Danny does some stupid shit, gets a ton of zombies onto Drogon, so Jorah saves her before she's killed by whites. Uh, and Sir, Sir Jorah goes down, saving Danny, which I think we'd all suspected was a decent possibility. Uh, and it felt like the perfect ending for that character and, and that 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 couple, right? What do you think of Sir Jorah's end? Because you are the biggest Jorah Mormon fan on this podcast, right? <laughs> on this podcast? <laughs> yes. Um, for some reason, the Jorah death didn't really get to me. Oh, um, that's, uh, I know. that actually makes me sad that it didn't get to you. 
Uh, no, um, I have a couple things to say about it. First of all, I guess because like we all really, 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 really expected it was going to happen. Yeah. Not that something needs to be something. Well, I mean, that's not no, that's not the reason because I w- I actually got really um, impacted by Theon's death, which we all knew was going to happen. So uh, I think it's more the fact uh, they only had two episodes with Jorah before they killed him off the season. We haven't seen him in like a year and a half or two years or whatever. Um. And they were just not great scenes for Jorah, I think. Um, I'm still really mad that he didn't, like, give Sam Tarly any comfort yeah. about his family. And I'm, then I'm mad that he took his ancestral blade and didn't, again, have the opportunity to say sorry about your folks. <laughs> uh, You're really so, holding on to that, Joanna. Well, I just feel like a real uh, bummer of a real, characterization real of Jorah. Real dick move, yeah. I think so and so like yeah that he died protecting Daenerys is perfectly on brand for him and you know congratulations bud but um you know you died doing what you loved which is throwing yourself in front of shit to protect Daenerys that's fine um I don't know and then his last lines were like what I'm a hurt uh, neither he nor Beric we forgot to mention Beric earlier neither he nor Beric got like really good last lines and that kind of bummed me out these men have beautiful voices ian glenn and and richard dormer let them let them say something beautiful as they die (laughs) (laughs) well joanna you brought up a good point earlier which is something i've seen happen a lot or in some instances right is that there's a difference between like the show did not execute that well or uh didn't do a good job of blank versus the show didn't do exactly what i wanted it to do Right? right. And I think there's like a difference between those two opinions. Like a lot of people, as as you just heard, you know, th- their connection to the show is very powerful and they kind of write narratives for themselves of like what is going to happen with the show. And then when the show doesn't meet that, uh, we get disappointed. Right. Uh, and that's a very like human thing to do. Uh, but I do think like it, it's incumbent upon us to evaluate the show on its own terms and what it's trying to do versus what we wish it had done. And in the case of Jorah, I, mean, I think you're like, kind of tongue-in-cheek a little bit, right? But you're also, there's some genuine disappointment there that, like, he didn't get a more memorable death. Is that right? Yeah. Just, or I don't know. I mean, it was a, it was a big death. Like, they gave him a, his moment. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, um, he gets, like, the episode-closing sort of stuff. Um, and I thought Amelia Clark did a really good job uh, you know, reacting. Yeah, and when uh, Drogon comes down and kind of like cradles oh, her, curls around yeah. her like a beautiful like a kitten, real cute. Uh, yeah, I really think it's just because they like really misfired Jorah the first two episodes. Yeah, like I... leading up to like yeah. that, that the the character of Jorah that we had invested in early on wasn't reflected in yeah. the, like first two episodes, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like put him put him by that fireside. Though what's you know what's kind of fun. Um, to notice in uh, the fireside chat in episode two, um, Tyrion says, I think we're all going to make it. <laughs> and everyone in that room does. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> it's true. only those suckers like Jorah and Theon uh, and Ed and Beric who were outside uh, that didn't make it. Mm. So if you were huddled around that fire, you were protected by Tyrion's prediction that you're going to make it. So it is really lovely that Jorah, uh, sacrifices himself for Danny, and it really reminds you that Danny is forever in his debt. Jonah Robinson. Speaking of, <laughs> and as most of us have found out the hard way, 
getting into debt is easy. Getting out of it is hard, especially if your FICO score isn't great. Uh, Sky-high interest rates can make it incredibly hard for you to break out of the revolving debt cycle. Thankfully, now, there's our third sponsor today, Upstart.com, the revolutionary lending platform that offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high-interest credit card debt. Uh, how do you like that segue, Joanna Robinson? Pretty I mean, good. A, beautiful. B, I just <laughs> want to say that like I was broke as a joke all through my 20s because uh, I worked like minimum wage at bookstores, basically, and stuff like that. I have been in phenomenal debt uh, in my life. I, I like that these sponsorship um, slots are a way to learn about Joanna Robinson's history, basically. Oh, it's, it's, it's personal time with Joanna Robinson. Amazing, anyway, amazing. Uh, if I had had upstart.com, uh, perhaps I would not have been in such a, a bind for a decade of my life. Uh, upstart goes beyond the traditional FICO score when assessing your credit worthiness. They actually reward you based on your education and job history in the form of smarter interest rates. And they upstart believes you're more... Than just your credit score. My credit score used to be really bad. It's good now. But oh, yeah, it used to be bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, Upstart makes it fast, simple, and easy to check your rate in just a few minutes without affecting your credit score. And once the loan is approved, most people get their funds the very next business day. Uh, so how can people access Upstart.com, John Robinson? Well, if they want to see why Upstart is ranked number one in their category with over 300 businesses on Trustpilot, they want to hurry to upstart.com slash kings to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes and won't affect your credit. That's upstart.com slash kings. Upstart.com slash kings. Thanks so much to Upstart for sponsoring a cast of kings today. All right. So we're approaching the end game of this episode. Uh, and let's see, the biggest moments of this episode happen towards the end, right? There's the Theon yeah. moment, uh, and the Arya moment, and then the Melisandre moment. So let's, let's kind of talk about those. Am I missing anything else like major that you want to discuss other than those things? Uh, the Theon moment, the Melisandre moment, and what else? Arya, the big Arya thing. Arya. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, Arya did a thing. That's yeah, cool. she did. She did uh, a thing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess we should just briefly mention that we see. Well, maybe John and the Undead Dragon. John squares off against an Undead Dragon and kind of yells at it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I do these. Uh, I do these Periscope broadcasts after every uh, episode of uh, of Game of Thrones with my wife, and you can see them if you follow me on Twitter at Dave Chensky. And basically. Uh, we, I, I was talking in that broadcast about how it reminded me, like she, my wife was saying, like, what exactly was John's plan there? Like, what 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 was he trying to do to the dragon? And I had recently watched the Avengers one, the Joss Whedon movie that came out many years ago, and so I'm gonna spoil that one. But basically, at the end of the Avengers one, uh, Tony Stark is facing off against one of these gigantic, like, flying insect type things. And Jarvis says to Tony Stark, like, sir, we don't have enough power to like get through that shell. And Tony Stark's like, have you ever heard of the legend of Jonah? Right. And basically he like flies into the gigantic insect thing, like and detonates it from the inside. I thought John was like rearing up to do something like that. I thought he was going to like. The Jonah and the whale. Thing. Yeah. Just like run yeah. in, like jump into the dragon's mouth or something. That seemed like his only play pretty much right at that point. 
I was, well, I was on tender hooks because like, okay, so the Night King might be immune from fire because he's like a popsicle. <laughs> I was curious to see if John be immune from fire because like, you know, he's, it's a big question mark uh, in the show. Yeah. As to whether all Targaryens are immune uh, uh, from dragon fire or if it's just Daenerys who's special. Uh, in the books, George R. R. Martin has said it's just that Daenerys is special and just special that one time. But in the show, she's been special a couple times. So I don't know if that applies to John. John did burn his hand on a lantern in season one, which a lot of people like to bring up. But I, I'm I was sure just th- about to bring that up. Yes. Were you? <laughs> I was. <laughs> Yeah. Well, also, Melisandre took her necklace off once to take a bath. So, you know, like, sometimes the show just decides <laughs> to goof on things. Yeah, yeah. Um, Cersei makes reference to a child she had that died that we don't ever hear about again. You know, stuff like that. Anyway. Uh, so, yeah, John her beautiful, Face... Her beautiful black-haired baby boy. Yeah, yeah, that's Sorry. right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, okay, Theon. Theon kind of gets his moment. You already mentioned, like, Bran gives him this, like, hey, you're a good man. That's Bran talking, not the Three-Eyed Raven, necessarily. And then Theon kind of uh, charges to his death. Uh, I, You know, on an intellectual level, I understand that Theon charging to his death probably delayed the Night King by, like, three seconds. And that, like, allowed Arya to come in at the last second and win. But I do wish that his death had been slightly more consequential. I mean... Or had felt a little more consequential. How did? What did you think of the Theon death? Yeah, I forget who was saying it to me today, but someone was like, "What if Theon had just run behind the tree and hid for like?" Yeah, like it's, it's not like the Night King Theon was like, style. yeah, like the Night King has already shown he is willing to not kill you if you don't pose a threat, right? Um, but I guess like to to maximize his honor, he had to go out protecting Bran. Um, as opposed to hiding, because he spent because he spent all his whole life hiding, John Robinson. Can't hide anymore. Um, yeah. So I have a couple of thoughts about this. Um, it makes you think that there's a, I like that he had the bow and arrow here. Um, and it made me think of, there's a season one episode where, uh, Theon saves Bran from some wildlings with a bow and arrow, like shoots a guy who's sort of holding Bran hostage with the bow and arrow. So I thought that was like a nice little like callback to Mm. that possibly, um, and then also he, uh, when he gives that, you remember in season two, when he like gives that big speech in the Winterfell courtyard and then he gets knocked out by like one of the ironborn who's with him. You know what I mean? He's like, today we die for, you know, the iron islands or whatever he's saying, whatever. Yeah. And he basically says, Good like, Theon impression. Yep. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, and he says like something about spears in our bellies. So, and he dies mm. with a spear in his belly. Nice. So. Um, so that's, you know, but uh, Theon dying feels so right for him to come back and die for Bran feels so right. Yeah, it's it it's a it's a sequence that should not have worked for a couple of reasons. Number one, we all expected it. Number two, it is very drawn out. It is very slow. And you're like, it's it's as slow as Hodor. But with Hodor, like we didn't see it coming. So it like really, really worked on us with this, like. I, you know, we all expected that Theon was doomed. Theon. You're a good man. Thank you. Thank you. 
I will say this, and I guess for the last time, I think Alfie Allen's one of the best performers on the show. And there's just something about his, I'm, I'm actually kind of getting emotional thinking about it. There's just something about his face, the way he performed Theon's last stand here that just gutted me. And I don't, I started crying and I like, I don't know why, um, because I, I really did see it coming, but it, there was something about the execution, the performance, not even in the staging, not even in the logistics, the plot, as you point out, just something in the performance that just really knifed me. And, uh, I, you know, speared, shout you, out speared to, you as it were speared me in the belly. Yeah. So shout out to Alfie Allen, who I think is a hugely underrated, uh, performer on the show. I agree that Alfie Allen is one of the show's MVPs, and uh, uh, it's uh, that being said, you know, I, I strangely was like pretty emotionless throughout the whole episode, and I'm talking as a guy who you know cried like four times during Avengers Endgame. Um, but yeah, this spoilers for Avengers Endgame. Yeah, but the episode didn't really uh, move me, not even as much as last week's episode did. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean, I mean um, la- la- last week's episode ripped me out from the inside this is the old this and like there's some something about aria's story that got me um i think it was just like her fear and her panic and the hound being there for her and barrack and all of that like something about that really got to me too he said we'd meet again and here we are at the end of the world you said I'd shut many eyes forever. You were right about that too. Brown eyes, green eyes, and blue eyes. What do we say to the God of Death? Not today. But other than that, this episode left me pretty emotionally cold. Yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, Theon charges in, and l- let's let's take a brief detour to talk about the Arya stuff, right? So, like, the Hound goes in uh, after her, and Beric sacrifices himself trying to save Arya. And uh, the idea is that, like, a lot of Melisandre's prophecies are coming true now, right? Like that, uh, or, or that the Lord of Light knows what he's doing. He brought these people back and to, and to this place for a reason. Right. Uh, and, you know, Beric, the reason Beric's there is, like, the reason he, the Lord of Light brought Beric back, like, 18 times or however many times he's been alive is to save Arya. And the reason they brought Melisandre back was to, like, uh, light those things on fire and give Arya the pep talk that she needed. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. A fulfillment of the prophecy that Melisandre gave years ago in, I want to say, season two, when they last parted. Three. Um, uh, you know, to kind of fulfill her role and save the world. Anything else about like that, that Arya stuff before, you know, the, the stuff at the end where she I, kills the I... king? I really liked it. I don't know what to tell you about um, the, I mean like the barrack stuff is like very overtly Jesus imagery. You know, he sort yeah. of like crucifies himself in the hallway uh, in order to stop 
um, the whites encroaching and, uh, you know, um, yeah, it, it, and, and the hound and his relationship with her and then Melisandre saying this thing to her and saying, and, and I like this because it's something that we see Melisandre do before. Like she did it, uh, to Jon Snow. She says, you know, nothing Jon Snow. So we've seen Melisandre sort of like dig up old catchphrases to spook spook or inspire people um you know what i mean so it's just sort of like i think i saw some meme where someone was like activate faceless man mode but it also reminded me of like the manchurian candidate like this is these are aria's trigger words (laughs) she just like (laughs) goes into assassin mode so yeah well Uh, there is a lot of people have said like brown eyes blue eyes green eyes and like i believe cersei's supposed to have green eyes right Lena Headey certainly has green eyes. Yeah. That is a fact. So maybe. So, so someone someone was like, no way they let Arya kill the Night King and Cersei. And I was like, well, I had Arya killing Cersei as like felt like a certainty to me. Right. Um, I, I also um, wrote an article two years ago that Arya would kill the Night King with that Valyrian steel dagger. Um, but uh, yeah, to have her do both maybe feels like a little much. We'll see. I prefer Arya kill Cersei than Jamie because it just does not seem like a healthy emotional choice for Jamie to make. <laughs> and I just want him to make healthy, good emotional choices mm, from no, now on. That's very considerate so. of you. Um so the uh, we go, and we, we should mention we got to see Arya like use that blade thing of hers, right? Like deconstruct the blade and everything. Yeah. I was not as yeah, impressed. It just I was like was I, I thought it, it was fine. Yeah, I thought it was going to be like a lot more badass than it was, and it was fine. It wasn't bad, but it was it just was like completely yeah. fine. Okay, yeah, yeah that that's like a blade that splits into two places, right? Like that's uh, yeah. that's it. Yeah. So then, uh, uh, oh, so then there's this like very long segment of like intercutting between you know Night King and all the terrible things, and there's like genuinely impressive cinematography of like you know, zombie whites, like, falling off the, like, battlements and, like, uh, hundreds of, like, extras, like, playing zombies and getting killed as zombies, all this stuff, like, and intercutting between that and Night King approaching Bran, all that stuff, like, um, really intense. And by the way, I wanted to ask you this question. Have we ever seen Game of Thrones use slow motion before? Uh, Do you remember? Uh, Yes, but very rarely. Yeah. Very rarely. And it's funny because, like, when I talked to Fabian Wagner... Uh, the DP on this episode, he he was like, you know, we've tried in the past to do kind of like funky things, and uh, you know, the guys, you know, like like to do uh, canted angle or something, you know, interesting, and uh, you know, the showrunners have been like, yeah, that's not our show, we don't do that, so they shoot it like what he called it very classically. Yeah, but, it's very classically uh, shot in general. Yeah. Yeah, but Mikhail Sapochnik was uh, said on the making of, he was like, yeah, they let us do like this frame rate. They let us do whatever we wanted, basically, in the Godswood. Um, you know, and Ramin Javadi's sto- score comes in, and Ramin Javadi's score is, uh, which you can listen to on Spotify right now, I think it's called The Night King, this piece. Uh, it's very piano-based, and there's only ever been one other piano piece on Game of Thrones, and that was The Light of the Seven, right. uh, which kicked off. Uh, the season six finale. And so, uh, you know, they wanted to hearken back to that, to that, to that, like other, like we're doing something different, which is what felt, what it felt like when the light of the seven played uh, in that episode, you're like, Whoa, I'm watching something different. Yeah. And so that's what they want to do here. You're watching something different. The frame rate is different. Uh, the score is different. Uh, something 
crazy is about to happen. I thought it was, yeah, I thought it's very, like, it's very cool when a show withholds a technique like that for yeah. 70 episodes or 69 episodes right. and then, like, rip, like, let's rip the slow motion. Uh, that's, that's, like, really effective. Um, and uh, so I, I appreciate all that. Love uh, the Ramin Javadi score. Also, I don't know if you remember in the Aria in the library scene, there's this, like, really crazy like effect of like the camera being super close up to Arya's face and like everything like around her face is like super blurry it's like a very kind of like saving private ryan style effect that also oh. felt like new in terms of the filmmaking language of the show yeah um so a lot of like new stuff going on in this episode from a filmmaking perspective uh and i thought it, in general it worked uh so uh, a big fan and then uh the night king's about to Kill Bran, the keeper of all the world's information. Uh, Arya seemingly <laughs> comes out of nowhere uh, and jumps in, like, you know, tries to stab the Night King. Night King catches her by the throat. Uh, Arya drops the knife, stabs Night King. Uh, the battle is won. The world is saved. What was your reaction when you first watched this? Uh, I, I, I really don't know. I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I um this is so good. This is so this is so killing Ned Stark in episode nine. It so is. Like it's just sort of like, um what? It's what? So <laughs> um that Arya did it didn't surprise me. Um that it was all over in episode three did like astonish me. And uh and that's kind of cool. Um I didn't know that was going to happen. It's so funny. It's so funny because like, um, and that's, I mean, this might be the biggest thing that's ever happened on Game of Thrones that I didn't know well in advance was going to happen. Uh-huh. Um, Joanna's like, what is this emotion? I'm feeling surprise? <laughs> surprise? What is this feel? I don't understand this feeling I have right now. Um, I knew, I mean, I knew anyway. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's funny because like there's, there was this very popular theory last week that, the Night King isn't going to be at the Battle of Winterfell, bro. He's going straight to King's Landing. It's a diversionary tactic. And I was like, I'm pretty sure the Night King's going to be at King's Landing. Um, you mean that you you believed those theories that the Night King would no. be at King's Landing? Uh, okay. No, sorry. I'm sorry. I, I meant I'm pretty sure the Night King's going to be at Winterfell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm curious how those people feel today. <laughs> Uh, this... uh, well, I, I mean, everything, to be fair, John, everything had been set up to be like, like even the opening credits made it feel like, oh, we're going to slowly watch oh, the yeah. Night King's army advance south, right? Like that's, yeah. it's like, oh, the opening credits are going to tell the story of the, the Night King army advancing south. And so the idea that the Night King's army would be vanquished in episode three, that the culmination of this 70 episode arc would be like starting in, literally in the first scene of episode one. Would be Arya coming out of nowhere and stabbing the Night King, and killing him and saving the world. Um, I, I I thought like yes, it was a very extended episode that was very involved and took a lot of work, but I was shocked that it was going to all wrap up in a single episode, right? I thought yeah, I thought uh, episode four was the aftermath. Isn't like so what I thought it was going to end. <laughs> <clears throat> I thought the battle was going to end with a bunch of people we care about are dead. 
the Night King locks eyes with Jon Snow and like raises his hands and like all our faves come back up. And then it was like cliffhanger. Yeah. That's how I thought it was going to end. Um, I was uh, wrong. Uh, big time. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and then so when I thought that was in the ending, <clears throat> what was frustrating me actually, because like when I think I when I think I know what's going to happen, then I'm trying to figure out like other contingencies. And I'm like, what is their retreat plan? I don't understand what their retreat plan is. Like, obviously, everyone doesn't die in episode three. So if they lose the Battle of Winterfell, how do they get out of there? I don't know how they get out of there. And the answer is they don't because they win. Um, but I definitely thought the Night King was going to I thought the Night King was going to die in episode five. And then episode six would be like the wrap yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. But it's <laughs> it's a four, five, six. It's crazy. It's, it's so crazy. Cool. Yeah, it's crazy lo- that there's like I three love, more episodes it. that don't yeah. have to do with the Night King, right? Like, I love. I love it. Honestly, I love this move. Like, um, am I a? Li- uh, here's what I'm a little worried about. We don't know what we're gonna get, right? And I love palace intrigue and stuff like that. So in theory, like, I'm super excited for this. What the show hasn't given me an an entire amount of faith in is its ability to manufacture conflict between people who should not be at odds. And we've seen this again and again with like with like Sansa and Arya last season or some of the Sansa and Jon stuff. And now the Daenerys and Jon stuff like it all feels a little manufactured to me, though. Something I will say, and this has been this was a point um first introduced to me by Kim Renfro at um, Insider, where she brought up this idea that they're really stripping out Daenerys's support system this season. Um, so she lost the Dothraki. She lost Jorah. Uh, you know, John is riding one of her, one of her dragons is wounded. Let's say she's lost her third dragon. One of her dragons wounded. Um, Grover and Missandei want to get the fuck out of there because, everyone's a racist asshole they don't want to stay there um so who does she and then and then john is like sort of cold shouldering her because he's like i don't know how to deal with this new information so who does she have left really is like Tyrion and varus kind of like she doesn't have that many people whereas john is like cozily ensconced in this network of support um, and he didn't really lose, you know, he didn't lose Sam. He didn't lose, you know, he lost Ed, but he doesn't care about it that much. You know, so he didn't like lose anyone major in that battle. He's got his family. He's got the North, all this sort of stuff. So like, it's interesting the power dynamics they're setting up there. I don't believe in this conflict between Daenerys and Jon, but they're setting up an interesting position for all of them to be in, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. So the Arya moment where she comes out of nowhere and, and kills the Night King, uh, I, I think it's incumbent upon us to indre- uh, address some of the chatter online, right, about this. Uh, there have been, like, the term Mary Sue was trending today. And that's obviously very upsetting, right? Because there's this implication out there that, like, the show didn't do a good enough job of setting up her being a total ninja badass uh, that would be capable of doing something like this. And I just think that's wrong on its face, right? I mean, do, should we even take time to address this? Or like, what do you what do you think? Like, what was your I reaction kinda, when you saw this, right? Well, it's so funny because someone actually, someone tweeted at me with some of the, some of the vowels missing with asterisks. And it was the first, you know, they like blotted out like the A and the Y, you know, yeah. Mary Sue, but didn't spell it out and tweeted at me about it. 
And it was the first I'd seen of it because I've actually blocked the phrase Mary Sue on <laughs> Twitter like a year ago, probably, because I don't think there's ever been a good faith argument with that phrase in it ever once. I, I, I have um, never I have never heard one like oh, I have never heard that phrase used in a way that made sense to me. But so the the first time that I got like really mad hearing the phrase Mary Sue was as it applied to Ray and Star Wars. And in with Ray and Star Wars Yeah, and, and let's just define what Mary Sue means for like those who don't who who are so apart from this ridiculous controversy that they don't even know what it is. But the idea of like a Mary Sue is like a uh female character who feels like way overpowered for what uh the show it's, or movie she's in has been set up, right? It's sexist on its face, honestly. Yeah. And like so the first time that it really like boiled my blood to see it was Max Landis raised it in regard to uh, Ray from Star Wars. And it really annoyed me, but I will say that you would have a better chance of convincing me that Ray from Star Wars, who is pretty good at a lot of stuff right when we meet her is a Mary Sue sooner than you will convince me that Arya Stark, who we have watched trained every single episode of this show up until now to do this is somehow a Mary Sue. Like that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Um, like John wrote a dragon without anyone ever like talking about <laughs> how to write a dragon. You know, John became Lord commander of the night's watch when he was like 16 or whatever. You know what I mean? Arya has been like, fencing and you know running and fighting and killing and all this sort of stuff she is a multi-season trained assassin so to you can you can be mad that the night king went out in episode three there has been reason i've seen reasonable arguments that people are like i really wanted this to be the final conflict i feel like this is you know i was really invested in this azora high prophecy all this sort of stuff i don't think aria fulfills that all this sort of stuff like that's fine this idea of a mary sue is so insulting uh and if you are a person out there i mostly see men use it but if you're any person out there and you're using it i would like you to stop and consider your motivations behind using it and really consider your worldview uh because it is it is like yeah you can be mad that Arya killed the night king for a lot of reasons but like don't even look me in the face and tell me she wasn't trained to do it you know 100 percent agree 100 percent agree with everything you said okay sure. it, it, I, I agree so much that i'm loath to even bring up anything else about the scene maybe i shouldn't <laughs> um but i, I like i 100 agree with everything uh you're saying about that i mean i, I think that i have absolutely no problems with Arya being the person to do it. Um, which apparently, by the way, there's a story that came out today that Maisie Williams' real-life boyfriend was like, John should have been the one to do it. Which, like, you know. Awesome. Yeah, that's some bullshit. But Cool story, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I do wonder, like, the show has seen... Like, I, I do wonder, like, is there an alternate universe... You know, we've talked a lot about the difference between suspense and surprise right and like would there is there another version of this scene where like you see Arya slowly making her way through the whites or you see her like pretend to be a white using a mask or something like that where like it, there is more tension as to like what is going to happen versus she just comes out of nowhere and kills the guy um 
that's kind of what I'm that where my mind goes when I see something like this is, and I didn't think it was like ineffective or anything, but I'm just wondering like, huh, like it did feel like just like out of nowhere. And I'm not saying like the show has set up. She's like has ninja skills. She can like disappear into crowd. Like it's it's not that the show hasn't set it up. It's just from a pure filmmaking execution standpoint. Uh, I am curious about like uh, is, is that kind of the best version of that scene? So does any of that resonate with you? Um, it's possible. It is possible that there was some version of execution of this that wouldn't have gotten people up in arms about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think people feel weird when they're, it's sort of like what I was saying about like, if you've created a fan fiction of some kind in your mind and the fan fiction is possibly unfair. I mean, because what's true is like, I don't, I I would not be surprised if Arya is the one to kill the Night King in George R. R. Martin's books. This the Arya killing the Night King was the showrunner's idea. Okay. I wouldn't be surprised if she did it in the books. Um, <clears throat> he has said who his end game players are and Arya is one of them. And she's very important. And I don't think she's training as an assassin for no good reason. Right? Like what role does an assassin play in a great war? Right. Like, so I've always thought that Arya would do this because you, you like think about these Stark kids as they go off and get their superpowers. Bran is this, you know, creepy can see everything kid. And Arya is a like highly trained assassin. So like, what is, what do assassins do? They kill like, okay. So that's what she's going to do in the final battle. Um, but that being said, uh, George's books are much more invested in these idea of prophecies in a way that, the show has never been as equally invested in that. And so George has laid a lot of extra track about who can or should be the hero in his book. And there's like two main candidates and it's John or Daenerys. And I bet you probably in uh, George's book, it'll be some combination of John and Daenerys with even possibly Arya dealing the death blow. But what happened in this episode is like, John did nothing. Like he didn't even get to like, I mean, I, like I'm not, a, I'm not the world's biggest John fan, but like, I think they should have given him something more effective to do in this episode. And I think if he had, he, tor something... he torched a few whites, you know, he did. He yeah. Did, yeah. But like, he didn't like maybe have him kill the zombie dragon. Maybe have him, maybe have, because he's killing the zombie dragon, Arya can get through something like that. You right. know what I mean? Like, like something for him to do and Daenerys, because they are sort of like, but I like the idea that it's the unexpected. And I also like the idea that Azora high, um, is like kind of everyone. I think it is supposed to be like everyone. And there's this idea. And, and for, those, that, for those who don't know what Azor Ahai is, can you just quickly recap what that is? Absolutely, I can. So Azor Ahai is this like fabled sort of messiah figure who first sort of beat back the night, um, you know, in Westerosi history. And there's been like a prophecy that a new hero would return, like sort of a new Azor Ahai reborn. Um, and, and so, you know, this is what Melisandre has been chasing, even though they don't say Azor High in the show. Um, uh, Melisandre prefers the term, the prince who has promised or the princess, but like, uh, Melisandre has been chasing this. She thought it was Stannis at first. Um, and then she thought it was John. Uh, and then when John died, she like really, it really threw her for a fucking loop. Cause she's like, okay, that's two that I got wrong. Uh, and then it seemed last season when she came back that she thought it was like John and Daenerys, like a twosome. Mm -hmm. uh, and now I think it's that like everyone in this battle is Azor High, 
uh, in, at least in the show philosophy. It's sort of like the <laughs> spoilers for the moral of Into the Spider-Verse. <laughs> anyone, anyone can wear the mask. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and what's what, uh, the cute thing that I've come up with, which is not canon at all, but like, so there's Zora High, who's this prince who has promised this fabled warrior who will come back and, and beat back the night and bring the dawn and stuff like that. Uh, and he has a weapon, Lightbringer. Uh, you know, and Stannis had the sword that was supposed to be Lightbringer, and then maybe John Sword was Lightbringer. But I like the idea of Melisandre being Lightbringer. She's like the she's a literal Lightbringer, and she's like mm. the weapon uh, that they have in this battle. Uh, that she's a Lightbringer. All of our heroes fighting are Azor Ahai, and this is what it took to beat back the night and bring the dawn. Um, that's sort of my interpretation of it. And I like that message better than like there is one. I think chosen one narratives are super lame and boring. Um, and I think everyone working together is is a much better story to tell. Uh, is this exactly the story that Martin's going to tell? I don't think so. But and so some people are mad about that, that they're like, oh, the show is just fanficking now. But like, I, you know, I, I I don't know. That's sort of my rambling take on it. What do you think? Yeah, so if I recall correctly, you know, there was this big confrontation with Stannis and Winterfell and Melisandre was like, you're the you're the one that's going to win the battle, right? And yeah. she got that extremely wrong, right? Yeah. And is it, I haven't gone back and looked at it, but like, is it conceivable like that this this battle was the one that she was talking about, right? Is that how we're meant to read it? That she, she read the, the prophecy correct, but she was just wrong about which battle it was? Um, I think it's more like, oh, about Stannis or about John? She says she says she saw John fighting in the flames at Winterfell. Right. right. Um, and I and like some people think that's the Battle of the Bastards. I kind of think it's this. Right. Right. But I think Melisandre's uh powers are similar to Bran's in that they can see a lot of things, but they can't always interpret them correctly. Um, and so like I think I think when Bran gave Arya the dagger in season seven he knew it had a purpose but he wasn't like you know in x many months you will kill the night king out of nowhere under the godswood tree you know like blah blah blah. he's just like you should have this dagger it's supposed to be with you you know what i mean and so melisandre's like i see some stuff i think it's this oops i was wrong maybe it's this ah got it wrong again uh you know and so when she comes back this time she knows Right. You know? I, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is like, is the stuff that she said to Stannis like true, but she was just wrong that it was about Stannis? Do you I know think what I mean? so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. 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 That's yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Long way around. Yeah. <laughs> no. No worries. No worries. Yeah. Um. So, I I mean th- that's most of the episode. There's this final v- rather beautiful scene where Melisandre walks out into the middle of the battlefield. Thank you. I I loved it too. Yeah. Yes. It's it's very sublime. Uh, she kind of takes off her necklace. She becomes her true old self. And collapses. Where I think we're meant to believe that she's dead. She feels like she has finally. She like got... off gases some dust. Like yeah, she is. She's done. She finally yeah. got the prophecy right, and yeah. she is peacing out. Right. She's she, like she, she served it. her. She served. Yeah, she yeah. did it. She served her purpose. Uh, and again, this this kind of like it was very beautiful. This, but this did kind of make me feel. Oh man, I kind of wish we'd like introduced Melisandre just a little bit earlier. You know. I suppose she just shows up in this episode and uh, does all this. But it was an extremely beautiful ending. So I, I, I cannot deny that. And that kind of that whole tone that you heard me take just now, it like really sums up my whole attitude about this whole episode, which is that there are moments of such transcendent 
beauty and technical impressiveness uh, that nonetheless also feel uh, that they are hindered by people doing stupid things, by like characters like Melisandre showing up and things occurring for maximum dramatic impact versus uh, what I would perceive as organically. Um, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of emails that came into a cast of kings at gmail.com uh, that had a similar tone. This email comes from Hector, who writes into a cast of kings at gmail.com. I was deeply frustrated with this episode. I've come to terms with the need to kill off the Night King and the Army of the Dead, but I felt like the uh, very little of the outcome of this episode was earned by the writing. My main issue was that the big decisions didn't have any setup or consequences for our characters. The initial charge was a mistake, but somehow Jorah survived. The Unsullied heroically defended the retreat, but Grey Worm teleported to the back of his lines with no explanation. The crypts were not safe, but ultimately safe enough for the name characters. My biggest issue was with around Arya. She was clearly the perfect weapon to deploy against the Night King, but we never saw that in the planning, in her decision-making, or how she pulled it off until the final seconds. Beric sacrificing himself to save Arya is not the same as sacrificing himself so she can get to the Godswoods and carry out her mission. Theon could have tried, try, uh, died trying to distract the others from Arya's attack. Instead, he died in a futile gesture. Compare this to Tyrion's brilliance and heroics in Blackwater, massive consequences for errors in judgment by everyone from Stannis to Oberyn, and the hard-won character moments in the previous episode. This one just fell flat. End quote. That comes from Hector, writing into acastickings.gmail.com. Overall thoughts on the episode, John Robinson? Um, there, there are things that I loved. Like I said, I think the whole Arya uh, arc works for me. Theon death really works for me. There's some visually stunning stuff in this. Um, I can't help but be grateful that my faves, uh, Jamie and Bran, survived. Um, it felt too long, you know? And uh, I think maybe if it hadn't been so long, um, I don't know, maybe maybe some of that Arya propulsiveness, like, you, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it has some issues. It has a lot of script issues, but like I can't fault the visuals necessarily, uh, except for when you can't see them. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I can't fault some of the main performances. So yeah, I think the thing that I was most struck by was Willa Paskin's article at Slate uh, called "Game of Thrones Taught Us to Want Death." Then it changed the rules, and she's basically commenting about how few people died in this episode, right? Mm -hmm. And um, this show, above any other show, taught us that, like, anyone can die. But then, starting with, like, when Jon Snow came back, it's kind of like, you know, maybe that's not the case, right? And she writes here in this article, we in the audience may be panting for death, and that may feel creepy, we may be callous and bloodthirsty, but we seem to have learned the lesson of the show, that happy endings are for stories uh, and not for the show, better than the show has learned itself. With each episode of the final season, Game of Thrones has painted itself further into a corner where the end will decide how good or bad the whole thing really was. Is this a show about a morally complicated, morally impossible world? Or is this just a fantasy wrapped in a complicated, fetid clothing that it is now throwing off piece by piece, revealing it was basic all along? A quest for the good leader who will restore order to the land, a legend about how systemic evil can be defeated mm. by one really badass girl, end quote. Mm, no, I mean, like, I love Willa. And I think that um, I think you can levy the the. I think it's important to keep 
mm, in a final season of something, I think it's really important to keep your criticism to the episode uh, because we don't know what the next three episodes are. So to like make these broad proclamations about like, you know, I mean, she's not, she's asking questions. She's not being irresponsible and stuff like that. But like, I think the, the, as she has an assumption of where it's going and I don't think that's where it's going. Well, I I think it's fair to say it's a fair point that the show's not over yet, but I, I think that it does feel a little weird that in the the way this episode was set up with this like nearly insurmountable force that so few characters died, right? Well, I, the, I yeah. yeah, I've been I've been at the forefront of this honestly of, of this complaint for a long time now. Like I was really mad yeah. about the uh, how like flimsy I felt the Jon Snow death felt. Um, I was mad that like Thoros died and beyond the wall. And that was like, nobody, I was mad that like Ramsey died at the battle of the bastards, but nobody on John's side died. Yeah. Like, I remember, that's I, why I thought I, you'd be backing me up right now. <laughs> well, I, I did expect there to be more carnage, but I didn't expect there to be more major carnage. I, I think, I think what's true is that um, maybe people watching the show don't love Theon as much as I do and the writers do. <laughs> and so his death doesn't feels like maybe another B-stringer to me. That feels like an A-lister to me. That's a guy who's been there since episode one. Like he's, I think, I don't know if I talked about it on this podcast, but Alfie Allen, you know that like group shot of them in the bookstore when they're like children? Uh-huh. You know what I'm talking about? When like before, like right when they were cast, they went to like a book signing for George R. R. Martin and you can see tiny Maisie Williams, tiny Silver Turner, blah, blah, blah. Alfie Allen's in that photo. Like he's one of the kids of Winterfell. Like that, like I think, you know, maybe the show hasn't done right by Theon in the last few seasons or whatever, like enough to make people care. But like his death really matters. Um and I don't know that like seeing Tormund die or Podrick die or whatever it is that I expected, uh, you know, would have mattered as much as that mattered to me. So I don't know that I needed like those bodies if the season ends without these consequences uh, that we've been talking about. That I am happy to revisit this conversation <laughs> and, and, and agree with Willa and agree with you and, and all that sort of stuff. I just yeah. feel like in episode three at the midway point. I mean, and like, we should also say, right. Nobody dies in Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Um, they have like Peter Jackson had to invent an elf called Haldir at Helm's deep in order for there to be like a single casualty at Helm's deep. There's no death at Helm's deep. You know what I mean? So like, I know we're not watching Lord Lord of the Rings. Rings, I I, I know we're not, I know, I know we're not watching Lord of the Rings, but I'm just saying like, um, I think, I think the show has been mealy mouthed. For too long for seasons um i don't think i don't know but i don't think we will end the season feeling that way all right but we'll see i just i think it was like mildly comical the way the battle was staged with like brienne brienne and jamie and pod like up against the wall each having oh. their own little like fighting booth Ridiculous. right you know what i mean it's like okay yeah. so these are the only ones that are gonna survive and then they survive right no, there was um, there there was the, there's a there's a moment where um the, the zombies are like or the whites are making this like you know uh, World War Z ladder up yeah. the up the wall or a Helm's Deep ladder if you want to say it, up the wall and at every 
I forget what these, and I, I really need to look it up because I got it wrong on my other podcast too. I think they're called Marins. Every single like cutout in the wall is a face we know. <laughs> it's like Gendry, yeah. Davos, you know, Bran, Pod, Bola, Grey Worm's up there. Jo- Jorah's up there, even though he's magically later way out on the battlefield. It's fine. <laughs> don't worry about it. Uh, like, yeah. And none of them died. It's, it is, it's nonsense, but it's, uh, but. Yeah. yeah, and and they're and they are they are they are smeared in pot armor. It is absolutely true. Uh, my number actually, we haven't even we haven't even mentioned my number one complaint of this episode. Oh wow! In We're... terms of in terms of plot armor. And what's that? Samwell fucking Tarly, yeah. man. I I love Samwell. I like we we <laughs> love like you know soft boy uh, a book loving indoor cat like sort of representation on this show that. Guy should have been in the crypts and died for nothing to defend Sam. And all we saw in this episode is Sam just getting like covered in zombies yeah. and various people saving him. And then at one point he's literally just laying on the ground crying. And like, I don't, that's a natural reaction. But what I'm saying is Sam, you should have been down in the crypt. Like I, uh, and you know, yeah, there's zombies down there too. But like uh, that Sam survived that is, Pretty nonsensical. A couple things. First of all, as you may know, I, I have a like little discussion group at my office about Game of Thrones every, every yeah. Monday. And uh, one of my coworkers pointed out that, remember when they brought the white back from uh, the north? And they yeah. brought it in this like wooden box. And like the whole time, the white stayed in that wooden box, no problem. But then for some reason in this episode, these whites are like busting out of these like stone crypt thingies and stuff. And like, anyway, just thought that was a weird... Uh, incongruity there but that was random to go back to what you're saying uh i think what i'm saying is okay number one it's it's kind of disappointing that not more uh people died because it really felt like the show was setting that up for the entire show not just last episode i mean like the entire show has shown shown us no one is safe until recent years uh so that's disappointing but then like even more disappointing than that is the fact that uh, the way in which the characters were depicted as not dying felt kind of ridiculous, right? Like if it, the, the show could have done a better job of of doing like making you understand why it is these characters made it out alive, but in uh-huh. virtually every shot they're like se- severely imperiled or on the verge of death, <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah. you you expect them to die, and so the fact that they don't is it makes it feel kind of like a cheat for like not just because of the show's themes and the show's character um but also because of the way this episode was shot and edited um yeah miguel sapashnik called those the like we're fucked shots he like had yeah. everyone in like we're fucked shots and like basically only this kill shot from aria is gonna save them and so um yeah i mean i really i can't argue with it i just i kind of just want to and this is maybe uncharacteristic of me Maybe just because we're in the final stretch, I kind of just want to wait and see. All right. All right. I kind of want to wait and see what the 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 show has in store, and I'm perfectly willing to be disappointed. If if no, like let's let's be honest, if no one had died, if Liana and Ed and Barrack and Jorah and uh, Theon, Jorah's also in episode one. Anyway, if all these characters had made it through, then it would have been like this is the the biggest piece of shit ever. <laughs> but like, <laughs> People died, you know. Yeah. Um, what was I gonna say? Uh, 
I really, it always really annoyed me uh, when you watch the commentary on Spoils of War and they talk about uh, the season seven episode where Jamie charges Daenerys and the dragon. And they're like, for the first time, two people that you care about are on opposite sides of the battlefield. It's not the first time, but that's fine. Uh, they're charging towards each other. And you know that one of them is not going to survive. And then everyone survived. I was so mad about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. like, don't boast about something you're unwilling to do. But they killed Jorah. They killed Theon. Uh, they killed a little girl. They killed they killed someone who's been brought back to life many, many times. They killed Melisandre. Melisandre's dead. The Night King's dead. A lot of people died. I don't know. Um, so. <laughs> All right. Well, we will see uh, if uh, you will end up being pissed at the show or not. But uh, yeah, there's three. Fing- fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed. Three episodes remain. Can you believe it? Three episodes remain. Um, but yeah, uh, so that's going to bring us into this week's episode. You can find more episodes of this podcast at gameofthronespodcast.com. Email us at a cast of kings at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at a cast of kings. And this episode was produced by Baby Zhang. Until next week, John Robinson, where can people find more of your work on the internet? Uh, you can find me on vanityfair.com, uh, unless we break the site again, or you can follow me on Twitter at Joe Roses. <laughs> Find me on Twitter at Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. At DaveChen.net slash letters is where you can subscribe to my emails. And also, I'm making a couple YouTube videos per month at YouTube.com slash Dave Chensky. Thanks for listening to A Cast of Kings. Thanks also to our sponsors this week, Postmates, Hunt a Killer, and Upstart. We will see you all next week. <laughs>